Welcome, and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Lyndon Frearson for his message. Welcome. Sorry that you get to see my face and my voice, uh, hear my voice again, but it is Mission Month, so sucks to be you. You hear all about Mission and me talking for a lot of this month. My name's Lyndon Frearson. If I haven't met you before, I'm the Mission Director, and I work with Mez and uh, Ben in running the Mission, um, or the Influence Stream, and under that we have a whole series of team leaders, some of whom you've met today. Over the last few weeks, you may have noted that Ben has, on repeated occasions, made allusions to the fact that I am indeed an engineer and that I have the potential to, at times, be a little bit geeky and there's been various jokes about pocket protectors, etc. (laughs) Now, I just want to be clear about a few things. I am indeed an engineer and it is something that is very important to me. However, I'm not defined by it. I shall be influenced by it, but I'm not defined by it. Um, And I don't own a pocket protector. And I'm sorry, Ben, to to burst that bubble. In fact, I was a very bad student, and uh, and I was surrounded by people who were actually really, really good uh, engineers when I was at uni, who were really good at the maths and the science and stuff. And I really struggled to understand what it was that I was doing until a lot later, and in fact, many years after I'd actually left um, university, did I really understand what it meant to be an engineer and to become good and competent at it. And there was a period of time in 2007 where I'd been at Ford, I'd been a graduate and I'd worked my way through the graduate program, I'd been on the accelerated leadership programs, we'd been learning lots about how to be a better engineer, better leader, better uh, manager in that environment. And I had thought that at that time my career was going to be centred around being at Ford. I had spent some time up here with Rachel, my wife. She'd had an opportunity to come up here uh, to Alice Springs and I'd followed and taken a year's leave without pay from Ford and then gone back to Ford in Geelong, uh, in Broadmeadow, sorry, with an intent to sort of re-kick or kick-start my career again and get back into the swing of things. And I'd been told at the time that because I'd taken time out of Ford that I would no longer be part of that accelerated stream. And I took that a bit hard. I took it quite personally and worked really diligently over the following two years to try and demonstrate that the experiences we'd had up here in Alice Springs had added value to our lives, that we'd learnt stuff and that we were able to bring those lessons learnt back. And there was a really defining point for me. In about, uh, there was about a six-week period in February and March of 2007. We'd worked exceedingly hard to, to get back into the swing of things at Ford. I'd been brought, made up to production superintendent. I ran the body shop, which meant that I had 205 people on the shop floor and about 216 robots, and the robots didn't talk back to you as much as the people did. Um, and there was this was this was fantastic. It was finally though sort of at the level that I wanted to be, and I'd got a phone call in from the plant manager to say, "Look, Lyndon, we just wanted to let you know that the leadership team have met, and you have you've done everything and and more. You've exceeded our expectations. Here's your future." And they laid out 10 years of this is what I was going to be doing, you to move into this management role and to this. As part of senior management within the plant, uh, we're going to end up working in China, we're going to do a whole range of things. And it was sort of suddenly everything was laid out as to what I thought I wanted to do. And in that same period, 
Uh, my step-grandfather had died um, and he'd been a large part of the reason why we were back in, in Melbourne and wanting to be around family and to be able to support the family. And we also found out that Rachel, we'd known Rachel was pregnant, but she'd got through 12 weeks and so suddenly we were able to tell people about that. And it sort of felt like this was it. This was the plan. We had everything laid out. I was going to be um, an engineer and a manager in Ford for, for the rest of my career. It was all, all documented. Um, and importantly, that getting onto that leadership level meant that I got, a, got to get a um, new XR6 turbo ute with a fuel card every six months. And I thought that was pretty good too. But at the same time, and at all, you look back on it and you can sort of say glibly God's timing, but it was literally within, within the space of weeks, I got a phone call from here in Alice Springs saying, we've got this, this little NGO who's got an idea about taking um, the work that they've done in remote Aboriginal communities and exporting that around the world, and would I consider coming up um, and, and starting up a new company? And that was with a one-year contract at um, about half the pay that I was on, um, with no, no certainty beyond that, but a blank sheet of paper to see where we would go. And I remember distinctly, I just, you know, those times in your life where you just have this perfect picture memory of exactly what was happening. And there was a spot in the factory where I could stand up on a slightly elevated platform and I could look down all through the body shop and I could see all the robots moving and all the people moving. And on a good day, it was just, it was like an orchestra. Everything just moved perfectly. You can tell when everything was in flow, it was just right. And you could sort of get an idea of what was happening. And I could see the cars going off into paint shop. They'd go up in an elevator, and then they'd come back down in a, all coloured. And then I could see the cars all finished on wheels coming out uh, down final line. And then over in the corner, there was a gate. There was a big roller door. And when every time that roller door went up, the car went out. And when that car went out, everyone in manufacturing went, gripper, we've got one more for the day. And 538 a day had to go through that door. And I remember sitting there and having this profound moment that I was surrounded by people in that company who were genuinely passionate about what they did and what they were part of as being part of Ford. They, they were hugely passionate and they would talk about cars and they'd go to, the, they'd go to the, the Ford car days, they'd do all of those things. And I realised there that I had both a privilege but a burden. And the privilege was that I had the opportunity to make a choice. And so few people in the world around us, so if you look at the total percentages of people in the world, very few actually ever get to make choices about their career or their opportunities. They're burdened by obligation to do whatever it is they're doing at the moment to keep their family going, or they may not have had the educational opportunities, or many of the refugees who worked in that factory who, and migrants who'd been there, they were just working as hard as they could so they could get money for their kids. They didn't have an opportunity to be able to, to think beyond the boundaries of that factory. And so I had a privilege, but I also had the burden that I realised that I, with that privilege, I had to honour it, and I had not realised exactly that I, I, I just didn't care that much about building cars. Um, I'd spent a lot of time working towards that, thinking that that's what it meant to be an engineer or to be a good engineer, but I actually realised when I looked around me, there was a lot of people who were passionate about what they did, and their passion defined them, and their passion was driving their outcome. But I, I just realised I couldn't do it. 
And so we went home and Rach and I talked about it and in the end came up um, in end of May of that year uh, to start up what became known as um, the, co- or the company that I run, Acoustica. We work around, around Australia and the world and have had enormous opportunities beyond what I could ever have imagined before. But to be given the opportunity to make a choice is an extreme privilege. And as I said, most people in the world like in the more than 90% of the world, do not get to make choices about what they do in their life or where they live. We are a very small percentage of them. But everyone in the world is given a choice to make uh, or should have the opportunity to make a choice for Christ. But in making that choice for Christ, if you have made that previously or if you have not made it and have been wondering what this is all about, there's a burden that goes with having the privilege of making a choice is you have to actually then do something about it. I'm going to go to Genesis um, chapter 28, verse 3 to 4. May God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and increase your numbers until you become a community of peoples. May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner. So these are words that are being, a blessing that's being spoken um, from Isaac to Jacob. And the, there's some really fascinating elements of exactly what's going on here. The first of all is there's some limits to the blessing. The blessing is that you go and make it, go and be fruitful and increase your numbers. So that's a great blessing. That sounds really good. Until you become a community of peoples. So the blessing has a caveat. It has a limit. It's to do, you, here's a blessing until you become a community of peoples. And that blessing implies to what we do in, in a church. Our, the blessing that exists across DLC is there to become a community of peoples. A community of people who love Christ. And it goes on and says, May he give you and your descendants the blessing given to Abraham to, so that you may take possession of the land where you now reside as a foreigner. And so the other part to this blessing, the first thing is there's a caveat. There's a limit to the blessing because there's a purpose to the blessing. But secondly, there's a command that goes along with it. That to be able to take advantage of the blessing, it's not enough just to receive it. One has to take possession of it. One actually has to take ownership of it. He was given the blessing. He was, as the, the allusion was to Abraham, he was taken to the lands. But being put in those lands, it was not enough. He actually had to step up and say, I'm going to own this. I'm going to take possession of it. I'm going to inhabit it. I'm going to be defined by this. And I think the thing for me that I discovered was that although I had turned out to be not a bad engineer and was reasonably good at that world, I realised that it was not my passion and it wasn't, wasn't actually what I was going to be defined by. What I was going to be defined by was a thing that I believed I could do with my, my skills. And the challenge for each of us then is as we look at what the choices that we've made and the choice that we can make to be part of this family is to not then say, well, what is my background and therefore have my background constrain where I go to, but what is my background, what are my experiences and how can that inform the passion and the blessing and the obligation that I have to go forward, to take possession of the land that Christ has put me in. And your land 
may be quite different from my land. It's not necessarily a physical land. It's not necessarily a, a part of Australia or a part of the world, although that may be the case. The land that you, you have been put in to take possession of may be a workplace. It may be a school. It may be a community club. It may be a group of friends that you know. But know that you have been put into that position to create a community of peoples. You are there to create a community of peoples. That's, that's the blessing that has been given to you. And you are there to be able to take possession of it for Christ. That's it. That's what you're there for. Your history does not define you, but it will inform your passion and it will inform your purpose. And we see that also, that that was true not just in the Old Testament and the Old Testament blessings, and we, we can look at the language of those blessings and see that they're framed in a very particular way. And sometimes it sounds like that's language that doesn't apply to us. But in fact, when we go to the New Testament, we see very similar things occurring. So we go to Galatians 1, chapter, chapter 1, verses 13 to 16. And this is Paul writing to the Galatians, and he's, he's reprimanding them about what they've been doing. And he reminds them of his own journey. And he says, For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the choice of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism before, beyond my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father, my father's. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being but to pursue God's word. To reveal his son to me so that I would proclaim the good news about Jesus to the Gentiles. We see here that Paul was given the blessing. He was turned around. He was given the great joy of knowing Christ as his saviour. But it was done for one purpose. It was done for the purpose of going out and making believers. There's nothing else. There's nothing. There's, this is. Paul was known for being fairly verbose in certain areas of his life, but he narrowed down his entire history, his entire purpose that God had given to him down to these two verses. He was set apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace and was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I may preach him among the Gentiles. That's it. And he took his past. He was, he was, a, he was a, a Pharisee. He was in, working in the Jewish synagogues. He was a leader. He was a teacher. He was an administrator. He was exceedingly good at what he did in the environment in which he was operating prior to his conversion. And although he could see the errors of his way in his prior life, he didn't allow that, he didn't sort of just ignore that and go, well, in my prior life I was, I was zealous and I persecuted people, so therefore I can't do any of the things that I did previously. I can't be a teacher or a leader because that was what I was doing wrong. He actually took all of those things that had been part of his life, converted those around to then be able to support his purpose. He created an enormous outcome 
by not focusing but from where he had been coming from, but focusing on the blessing that had been given to him and the purpose that had been set out for him. His purpose was influenced by his past, but he was not defined by it. But that purpose, as I said before, required action. He needed to go out and do things. He needed to step out. It was not the opportunity for him to say, well, now I will just sit and spend three years in a monastery mulling what I've done. I'm not going to sit here and just contemplate my navel. His immediate action was to go out and go to the Gentiles. He didn't pause. He didn't stop. He went straight out. In Galatians 2... Verses, I'm going to read through this whole section. So Galatians 2, um, and I'm reading from the New Living Translation. I'm not sure it'll come up on the screen. But Galatians 2, verses 2 through to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem, this time with Barnabas. I took Titus along too. I went in response to a revelation and meeting privately with all those esteemed leaders esteemed as leaders, I presented to them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. I'd wanted to be sure that I was not running and had not been running my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised, even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false believers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. As for those who were held in high esteem, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not show favouritism. They added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they recognised that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the uncircumcised just as Peter had been circumcised. They'd been to the circumcised. For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, was also at work in me as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Cephas, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and, the Barnabas, me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. And when they recognized the grace given to me, they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles, and they go to the circumcised. All they asked that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. It's a quite lengthy section there to read through. But there's some extraordinarily powerful points to understand about what Paul was doing at this point and in his understanding of his purpose. The first thing to note was that his purpose, although he felt compelled to answer to no one other than God... He was concerned about what he was doing and that his passion and his purpose was not being run in vain, that he hadn't been wasting his life pursuing something that was not correct. And so he took himself to Jerusalem. And importantly, it's to understand that at this time, going to Jerusalem had the potential for him to be in danger. There were people who were suggesting to him he shouldn't go to Jerusalem because of that danger. But he went there and he went to meet with the the elders and leaders of the church, the, the esteemed pillars of the church, he calls them. And he went to meet with them in order to be able to check that what he was doing was right. So his purpose was not unconstrained, it was not unsupervised. He did want to bring it back to check to where it was at. 
And our purpose and our, our mission and our influence as a church is something that we will always check back to say, well, hang on, uh, uh, just because we feel good about it, just because we feel motivated about it, is this still aligned to where we need to be? But the other thing he does is he comes back and he says, there's no favoritism. I have a purpose. I have a passion. My passion is for the Gentiles. It's what I was called to. And those verse in that, that verse in uh, first, uh, chapter 1 of Galatians where he says, I was saved for no purpose other than to go to the, the Gentiles. But he acknowledges that his purpose to be called to the Gentiles was equally and no more and no less important than Peter's call to the Jews. There is no difference in the, perf- in the value of the purpose that God ascribes to the work they've done, even though he has given each one of them a mission. Ben referred to before as to that, that challenge that some churches have is do we, do we only do local or do we only do overseas? Do we only do humanitarian work or do we only do evangelical work? And what is actually happening here is that people who are passionate and who are driven by a purpose can believe exceptionally strongly about the thing that they are called to do and they can start to believe that that's the only area that needs to be focused on. And what Paul's actually saying here is that you have to have a purpose. He's, he's shown what his purpose is to everyone. You have to be passionate about it. But just because it is your purpose and your passion doesn't mean in any way that, that someone else's purpose or passion is invalidated or limited by that. Yeah. We are each compelled to find our purpose. Within our mission strategy, within our influence strategy, that you have no obligation to buy in to every single element of what we do. Some of you will feel more compelled to engage with, with Africa. Some of you will feel more compelled to engage with the work that Dan's doing in the women's shelter. Some of you will feel more compelled to engage with Indonesia or China or Vietnam or India or the, the Desert Life Services. To be, feel compelled to be engaged with one or the other of those is not wrong. To not be engaged in any of them is wrong. Because your salvation is here for the purpose of building a community of peoples and to take possession of the community that you are part of. That is your mission. That's our mission. That's our mission as a church. And we need to be clear that as we pursue the work that we do, we will always do it in a way that comes under a godly authority. And there may well be times where some of you feel compelled by God to do that that you're being called to something. And that's great. But you'll need to come in then under a mission program and an influence stream that says, where does the church believe we are being called? Where do we believe we are operating in aggregate? How do we understand our broader challenge as a church and what are the things that we're going to do? In a moment, Ben's going to come up and he's going to pray for us. And if you've never been, if you've never given your life to Christ before, then this is an opportunity that, you, that we're going to give you to be part of this. 
But we be, that opportunity is for you not to be constrained by your prior life, but to look at the lessons and the experiences that you've had, the skills that you've learnt in your prior life, and to work out how can they be invested in and to be used to develop a community of peoples that know and love God. And if you have given your life previously, then this is your opportunity to sit there and say, well, what is my passion? What is my purpose? Where do I fit within this mission program? Each one of you are here for a purpose. I don't know necessarily where each one of you sits within that, but you are here for a purpose and we need to understand it. Your purpose is no more or less important than anyone else's here in the church. But we will be less as a church without you contributing to it. Thank you. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.